Good morning, everybody. We have two readings this morning. Uh, The first one is from Hebrews, which was written after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And then we're going to flip back to Leviticus, which was written well over a 1,000 years before Christ walked the earth. So let's start in Hebrews. We're reading from chapter 9, um, verse 11 to 15. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most, most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive, the, may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Moving on to Leviticus. Chapter 16, starting at verse 1 and going through to verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. 
he is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert. Thanks, Trudy. One time when I was about, um, so when I was about oh, eight or something like that, and my dad was about my age, he took us on this um, bushwalk, and dad's bushwalks were always a little bit crazy. So we went to this place, and I actually managed to find it on Google, like Google Photos, and, and here's a picture of it right here. It was a creek with a damn wall, but I don't know if you can see in the picture. The dam wall's been cut out. It wasn't like that when I was young. It was still just solid concrete across. And so the water came all the way up to that, that top line there that's just sort of cut out a little bit in the top. And then it would just spill over the edge slowly. And so along that top bit was like really slimy and slippery, which didn't stop us kids from walking out along the dam wall, and Dad too, mind you. We'd, um, we'd walk along the edge of the um, the dam wall across that water bit back onto the other concrete site. And my younger brother, even though he was only about four at the time, he never knew his limitations. Look at him. He was a hyperactive terror. He looks nice, but look at that cat. That's terrified. There he is, terrorising the cat. Here he is, terrorising Dad. Makes me feel better as a dad just looking at how tired he looks up there. <laughs> my brother, he always thought he could keep up with the older kids. And so he follows us out onto this wall. And then when he gets near the middle in that watery bit, he slips into the creek and straight away he sinks down into the brown water and disappears completely. I can still sort of remember just that feeling of of absolute panic and powerlessness. But thank God, you know, Dad was actually pretty close. And he didn't seem to panic. He didn't even jump in or anything like that. He just reached right down with his arm into the water, feeling with his hand, 
And somehow he manages to feel my, my brother's hair kind of waving around in the water. He grabs onto it and pulls him up back into the sunshine. Now it was all over in probably, I don't know, 30 seconds or something like that. But for me, the terror of, of what could have been, it's just always stayed with me. I just remember feeling so relieved. But my little brother, he wasn't relieved. He was livid. He, he burst into tears like you'd expect, except his issue wasn't that he nearly drowned. It was that Dad had pulled his hair. And he was furious. I don't know if he's ever forgiven him. He thought, Dad has pulled my hair and he's got no good reason to it. And he just kept going on about it for the rest of the day. He didn't seem to understand the danger that he'd been in. And so he completely misread that Dad pulling him up by his hair wasn't an act of cruelty. It had saved his life. Now, as I reflected on this, I was thinking, don't you reckon if you're a parent, or if you have a parent, all of us, don't you reckon being a parent is full of these kind of moments? You know, where toddlers or or kids and then teenagers, they interpret what you're trying to do, not as an act of love, but as either an act of incompetence or ignorance or sometimes cruelty. You know, how come can't I have ice cream for breakfast? How come can't I just take a a packet of pizza shapes for lunch to school and that's it? How come can't I play Fortnite 24-7? Or how come can't I have a boyfriend who's five years older than me? You know, the answer is never because mum and dad love me, is it? It's A, because they're incompetent, B, ignorant, C, cruel, or more likely D, all of the above. Now, I'm exaggerating a bit. It's Father's Day, I'm allowed to. But you get my point. So often, kids, they misunderstand what parents are doing. And it's the same for for most of us with God. When we really look closely at God, really look closely at, at what he does, there are moments that we find just so jarring with him. Moments where we just don't understand him. Moments that we're likely to interpret as him being either incompetent, ignorant, or just plain cruel. Like we've been looking at the um, book of Leviticus, like Craig said before, these last few weeks, and it's just full of all these kind of moments, don't you reckon? It's an ancient book, a a truly ancient book, over 3,000 years old. And it's full of these jarring, hair-pulling kind of moments. We just had read one of the most important days in the Israelite um, calendar, God's people's calendar, a ceremony called Yom Kippur, or, or the Day of Atonement, But maybe for you, it just felt confusing as it was read or or maybe even wrong with the priests and the garments and the animals being sacrificed. Now in a minute, I'm going to explain what this ceremony, this ancient ceremony was about. But even as I do that, chances are that that will actually just highlight more of these hair-pulling kind of moments. But stick with me if you can, because this isn't God being incompetent or ignorant, or cruel. This really is God reaching down to pull people out of a dark and hopeless situation back into the sunshine. Keep that in mind as as we look at this ancient ceremony, as we look at what it's all about. Because the first thing that we see that this ceremony is all about is that everything in it points to sin making a mess of us. If you look at all the details of it, Everything that's going on in this strange ceremony, they all make this point. Sin is making a mess of us. And sin is us 
making a mess of God's world. Just look at the first couple of verses again. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now let me just give you a quick bit of background so that you can understand what's going on here. God, he's just saved his people out of slavery in Egypt. Egypt was the superpower of the day. Pharaoh was the kind of supreme king. He was seen even like a god from, by his people. But the true God had stepped in and fought for his people to rescue them from slavery. And Egypt and, and Pharaoh were humbled, brought to their knees until finally broken, they, they let God's people leave. And so now God's people are on the move from Egypt. They're, they're like a huge army, all in tents. And God tells them to set up a tent for him right in the middle of their camp as a kind of mobile palace. And in fact, the way that the tent was to be set up, we heard the other week, it mirrored the way that Ramesses, one of the pharaohs, Ramesses II, had set up his battle tent. They found pictures of it that actually show the same thing. God was showing them that that he's not only a king, he's the true king, the true superpower, greater than any pharaoh. And from this tent, there in the middle of them, He'd be there, present with his people. He really would be present, ruling as their king. And so when Aaron's sons, you know, when they just waltzed into the tent, into his presence, kind of as casually as you might open the fridge to look for a snack, they died. And so here God's telling Moses that, that Aaron is not to do the same thing, not to make the same mistake. Because even though Aaron, he's the most senior kind of religious guy they've got, it didn't matter. Even he was completely incompatible with God because of the mess of sin. Now, this is a hair-pulling kind of moment, don't you reckon? Right here. It's confronting. We don't tend to think of God as being incompatible with us. Often these days, we think the complete opposite. We think things like God's in the trees in the forests, he's in the waves, he's within me, he calms me, he connects me to a greater, something bigger, a greater sense of, than, than who I am. And we're quite comfortable with that idea of God. We feel quite compatible with that. But God shows us powerfully here in this ancient ceremony that this doesn't go anywhere near close enough to who he really is. We need to change how we think about God. Because a view of God that, that's like that is actually dangerous for us. Because unless the mess of sin is dealt with, we can't be comfortable with God. If we are people who contribute in any way to the mess of this world, we're not compatible with God. We can't even stand in his presence. A few weeks back, I um, borrowed a friend's incubator, you know, for like hatching eggs. I thought it'd be really easy to hatch eggs, you know, you just sort of, whack them in like a microwave or something, turn it on and come back and, you know, there's chicken ready to go. But this thing was not easy. After being woken up, you know, several nights in a row with the humidity being too low or the temperature being too high and alarms going off. And then at, one, at the most stressful point, the, um, it has like a little egg turner that automatically turns the eggs. Anyway, the wires had disconnected one time. And without thinking, 
I, I just reached out my hand to reconnect the wires and found myself being electrocuted. Now, it must have been a reduced voltage. I don't really understand electricity, as you can see, since I tried to grab wires with my bare hands. But anyway, I didn't die. I'm still here, thank God. But I can tell you, that experience instantly changed how I think about electricity. You know, I might like to think of electricity as a kind of warm force that lights up my house and and gives me warmth whenever I want. And that's partly true. But let me tell you, when you hold on to electricity with your bare hands, it changes how you think about it. And the Day of Atonement, this, this ancient ceremony, it's like holding on to those live wires. It should change how you think about God. It shows us that, that sin really does make a mess of us. Everything in this ceremony points to sin making a mess of us. And isn't that what we actually see in, in everyday life around us, in our world? Sin, by the way, it means rejecting God. It means rejecting Him, not loving Him with our whole heart. But it also means rejecting His call to love others every bit as much as we love ourselves. And all around us, don't we see the mess of of people rejecting God, not loving Him with all their hearts, not loving people every bit as much as they love themselves? Sometimes we see it in extraordinary ways, like in Afghanistan at the moment, where we see such a mess of selfishness and violence that we see whole nations just throw up their hands and, and give up. That's the mess of sin on a huge scale. But sometimes we feel the mess of sin in far more personal ways, like when we see relationships break down around us, when we see people judging us or overlooking us or using us, lying to us. And when we're honest, we see that we cause the same sort of mess in the lives of others. But here's the thing. Everything in this ceremony points to God not taking this lightly. Everything points to to sin, sin clinging to us, messing us up and making us incompatible with God, making us part of the problem that God has to deal with to fix this world. Now, like I said, this is a jarring moment. And what we tend to think at this point is, we we tend to think that God's the problem. His holiness is the problem. He's unrealistic. His standards are too high. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had lamb chops for dinner. And um, the fat on these things was like an inch thick. It was unbelievable. Anyway, after dinner, I I threw a a bit of the fat um, to our dog... Chestnut, and you know, she absolutely loved it. She thought it was the best thing ever. But do you know what she did with it? I have no idea how, but somehow she used it as hair product. <laughs> just on the top of her head. She just sort of, I don't know, I don't even know how it was possible. But when I went to give her a pat, I thought, oh, look at her hair, it's sort of a bit wet. Turns out, as I patted her, it was rancid lamb fat, making her hair stick up straight on end. Now, I wasn't impressed. And I can tell you, I didn't hesitate for a second to banish her from out of the house until I could get around to giving her a bath. I didn't even think twice. Of course that's what I was going to do. There was no way she was going to be sitting on the lounge chair next to me trying to lick my face like she normally does. Now, you don't blame me for that, I don't reckon. You you get it. But why is it that we understand that? But we, we struggle to understand that that's how God feels about my sin. That's how God feels about us 
because of how we treat him, because of how we treat people he's made, people he loves far more than we ever could. That clings to us. You know, think about what it is. It's our lack of compassion that God can't stand. Our lack of goodness, our our pettiness, our selfishness, narcissistic tendencies, our greed to, to consume whatever we desire, whoever we desire, our willingness even to use people, manipulate them to get what we want, our lack of humility, our self righteous anger, our hypocrisy that we'll fairly happily judge others when really we're not all that different. Now, even we hate those things in other people when we come across them. Why would we think that God could possibly be compatible with these things? He's not. He hates this kind of stuff. But these things, they stick to us closer than we could ever imagine. And in this ceremony, everything in this ceremony, it points to this truth that sin, it it makes a mess of us. But you know, that's not actually the main thing that this ceremony points to. The main thing this ceremony points to is that God's heart for us is actually to clean us up from the mess we're making. That's what this ceremony shows far more powerfully. Everything points to God longing, longing to clean us from the mess we're making. Look at verse 3 again. Look at the instructions that God gives to Aaron on how he can actually come into his presence. He says, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Now, it's all pretty strange stuff to us, I've got to say. You know, offerings and special clothes and washing with water and all that kind of stuff. But it's all pointing to these two things that we've seen so far. Sin makes a mess that's not easy to deal with, but God makes a way that sin can be dealt with. I used to be a pharmacist, as as some of you know. Um, And in my graduate year, I worked in a a big kind of country hospital um, in Wagga. And after I'd been there for about six months, I discovered that the hospital had a, had a sterile dispensing unit that we never ever used, and I didn't even know it was there. And the reason I found out is that my boss said to me that we needed to, we needed to make up these sterile eye drops for a patient. The thing with eye drops is they don't have a preservative in them, so you've got to make them in an absolute sterile environment where there's just no bacteria whatsoever. Being the kind of overexcited slash overconfident pharmacy grad that I was, I I begged my boss to let me be the one who would make them up. And against her better judgment, she she agreed to it. And so we went to the sterile unit, and pretty quickly I realised that I'd bitten off more than I could chew. Do you know how hard it is to remove all bacteria and to keep something completely sterile? Now, this ceremony in Leviticus that we're looking at, you know, to remove sin, it seems strange to us with all the special clothes and and the washings and the rituals. But in one way, it's not that different to some of the things I had to do to make those eye drops. At a certain place, I had to wash my hands in a special way. There were certain clothes to, to put on in a special way, including even booties for my feet and a hairnet. Then I had to enter a, a certain room and work in a special cabinet 
where the airflow was carefully controlled, I had to work in an extremely careful way to eliminate bacteria and, and, and to keep the bacteria out of the eye drops. And I can tell you when I was done, I was not at all confident that I was successful. I half expected my boss to get a, um, a call from the doctor saying, what did you put in those eye drops? Because where my patient once had eyes, there's now like black holes or something like that. But the thing about this ceremony that we're looking at in Leviticus is that even though sin clings even closer than bacteria, it's even more difficult to remove than bacteria, unlike me with my eye drops, they could be absolutely confident that God was giving them a way to effectively deal with the problem. In fact, what we saw in that reading is that God provides three different ways for sin to be dealt with in this ceremony. Have a look at it again in the process in verse 6. So first... Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So even though Aaron is the high priest, he has to purify himself so that he can purify the people. Then verse 7, he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. So one of the goats is about purifying the people from sin. And the other one is about taking their sin away. Look at verse 21. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place. It's taking their sin away. And then finally after that, there's another sacrifice in verse 24. Then Aaron shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people. Now, it's a bit hard to understand what's going on here, but there are three ways that sin is being dealt with through all of this. So first, there's purification from sin. Aaron, he he purifies himself. He also purifies the tent where God dwells with his people. And then he purifies... The people, and it all happens with blood. The idea is that the mess of sin leads to death. In their thinking, life was found in the, in the blood. And so life, the life of the animal, is somehow overcoming the mess and the death that sin brings. But the second way that sin's dealt with is, is with a ransom. Aaron is he's ransoming his life and then the lives of the people. The idea is that their rejection of God is actually treason. It's that serious to mess up our lives, to mess up God's world, to mess up the lives of others. God says that that's treason that deserves death. But God provides a ransom, a substitute to take their place. And then finally here, sin's being dealt with in that it's being taken away from them. It's being transferred onto the scapegoat and then it's being removed. This is all about reconciliation. It's all about sin being forgiven and forgotten. This is God's way of, of dealing with the mess of their sin. And it's pretty confronting here too, isn't it? Just the idea that an animal dies in our place is confronting. We've managed pretty well to detach ourselves from death. I mentioned the incubator before, and of the, um, of the 16 quails that amazingly hatched, 
A few of them died that first night. We were traumatized. We were so detached from death. And so the idea that we deserve death because of how we're messing up the world, it's almost incomprehensible to us. Even though that it makes sense on the one hand that if we're part of the problem, the solution would be removing us. And then the idea that God would make a way that we could be ransomed from death by the death of an animal, that's almost incomprehensible to us too. It's another hair-pulling kind of moment. And because of that, we can miss the heart of God here. God's heart is for us. That's what this is all about. His heart is to clean us from the mess that we've made. Not in a kind of OCD kind of way. God's not like some unreasonable clean freak. He's like a parent. He's like a, a parent who longs to help their child, who's, whose life has become desperately messed up and needs to be cleaned up. And whatever you take away from, t- from today, don't miss this. God's heart is for you. I've got friends who've got um, four adult kids and three of those kids are just the most wonderful, genuine, kind kids you could ever imagine. But one of them is, is not at all like that. Even though they loved them all equally, if anything, they loved this child more because he needed more love. But still, he is incredibly selfish. He's destructive to the family. He uses drugs He's held someone up at at knife point at an ATM before. He's been to prison multiple times. He's lived on the street. He's changed his name, changed his gender, cut his parents off because they refused to keep giving him money again and again. But you know what their heart is for their son? When he was in prison, they were the sole people on this planet who would actually go and visit him even though it meant driving four hours every weekend. When he was out of prison on the street, they were the ones trying to help him, trying to get him to come back, and they were the ones who took him in again and again. Their heart is absolutely to see the mess of his life cleaned up. And if he just asked for their help, I can tell you they would swoop in and be there for him. God's heart is like this for his people. Everything in this ceremony points to the fact. That's what this ceremony, it showed them back then. But you know, even though it's so foreign to us, even though it's, it's so ancient, it shows us this truth today even more powerfully than it showed them. This, this ceremony, it was never actually meant to be the solution. It was, it was actually meant to show them the problem and it was meant to point to the fact that God was resolved to one day fix the problem for them. Ultimately, we see that this, this ceremony, what we see in this ceremony, is that everything points to Jesus being the answer we need. This ceremony in Leviticus, they were told they had to repeat it every single year. But God's plan was that in one sacrifice on the cross, Jesus would make us fully compatible with God forever. Everything points to to Jesus being the answer that we need. And sometimes we talk about God like he's only interested in getting involved in our lives in order to judge us. We think of him swooping in not to liberate us, but to hold everything that we've ever done over our head self-righteously, 
just so that he can be there and say, didn't I tell you so? But that's not his heart. Jesus is God swooping in to clean up the mess of our lives. His death cleanses us. It purifies us like nothing else can. Jesus is God paying the ransom for us, giving his own life in the place of our life, our substitute. Jesus is is God taking on the burden of our sin onto himself, the scapegoat, our selfishness, our brokenness, never to be placed back onto us, never to be held against us, never even to be remembered by God. That's the heart of God. That's the heart he has for you. That's the kind of father our God is. But he won't force himself on us. He'll never force himself on you. But say the word and he's there. And he'll clean up the mess of your life for you for good. And I I told the story at the beginning about my dad saving my brother's life and my brother just completely misunderstanding what he was doing. Don't do that with God. You know, what we've been talking about, it's not comfortable, but it's real. It's just so much easier to construct our own comfortable, compatible version of God. Anyone can do that. But I hope you can see that the real God is so much better than that. He loves you more deeply than any kind of made-up version we can come up with in our own heads. And what he'll do in your life, the difference he'll make, is far greater than any compatible God we construct. Even if you feel like God's pulling your hair, do something about that. Whether you're always here or, or even if this is just your first time here today, do something. And the, the thing to do is to follow where God is pointing you, to Jesus. And the way to do that is actually to talk to someone who knows him, ask him to, to help you explore Jesus more. Uh, if you've got no one that you can talk to, come talk to me. I would love to point you to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, the heart that you have for us, we so misunderstand so often. We think of you as ignorant or incompetent or cruel, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. Your heart is to clean us forever for good, to take our place in Jesus dying for us, to not even remember our our. Um, the mess we've made in our lives or the mess we've made in others, to not even remember it all. Father, help us to see your heart for us, to see who Jesus is for us. And Lord, to um, put our trust in him for good. And we pray this in his name. Amen.